If you would take your Bible this morning and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read the first 15 verses. The Bible says, For we know that our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved. We will have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, that is in this tabernacle or this body, we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us a self-same thing is God, who also hath given us unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that, whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body than to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. For we are manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For if we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that you may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The title of this message this morning is Motivation for Service. Motivation for Service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege that we have to open your precious word. I pray that as we look into the word of God today, that we allow you to search our hearts by your word and your blessed spirit. And Father, I pray that you would reveal to us things that, that we need to change be conformed to the image of your Son. I pray, Father, that you'd also encourage and comfort our hearts in our walk with you, that you might be glorified. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, what motivates you? You know, people are motivated by many things in our world. Some by fame, fortune, They live to make lots of money. That's their motivation in life. Some are even motivated by hatred. In fact, there's a growing number of people that are motivated by hatred. And, of course, this hatred oftentimes is is, uh, uh, shown against God's people. Um, And I was reading here this week that they tried to pass a bill in Idaho restricting or to curtail persecution of Christians. And it was very evident in the bill, and and many said the bill favored Christians, but the one who put forth the bill said she was just trying to promote that the, the, you know, 
the freedom of all religions and, the, and, and, and not persecution of any, but, but the word Christian was in the bill, I think, 10 or 11 times. But see, the problem is the persecution of God's people is on the rise. It's being greatly exceeded in a lot of places. And a lot of people think that Christianity, quote-unquote, is a hate religion. And they, they get that from, from verses like Leviticus 26, where it says that you shall chase them with the sword. Or Matthew 10.34, where Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. But, of course, if you read those verses in context, you'll understand they took those verses out of context. When children of Israel were commanded to chase those Canaanites with a sword, they were to judge those people because God had already judged them. They were worthy of crimes that were worthy of capital punishment. And, of course, in Matthew 10... Jesus is not talking about dividing people with literal swords, but that people would come against us with swords because the gospel divides people. It will set a man against his wife, a wife against her husband, against their children, so on and so forth. So, the, so what is it? So the question is this morning, what is it that motivates you? Uh, you know, in this passage of scripture, I have three things, three things that ought to motivate us as God's people. Uh, and if you're taking, if you're, if you have an outline, first one is a motivation of hope. The second one is a motivation of fear. And the third one is the, the greatest of the three. It is a motivation of love. So first of all, a motivation of hope, a motivation of hope. In verses 1 through 5, it says, We know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So he's talking about here, of course, when he's talking about this earthly tabernacle, he's talking about this body. And when it, when it is dissolved, when it dies, which it is going to, it's either going to die or it's going to be changed when the Lord comes for us in the air. And so it's going to be dissolved. We're going to be given this new body that doesn't groan, uh, and it isn't burdened, uh, you know, you know and, we, and we have this hope or this expectation that this is going to happen. That's what the word hope means. We have this hope. The uh, Bible talks about the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our, of our Savior, our, and our great God and our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. And, you know, when we say we have a hope, it's talking about a strong expectation, and that hope is based upon the eternal, unchanging Word of God. If God has said it, it is true. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. In Hebrews chapter 6, uh, uh, I believe the Apostle Paul who wrote Hebrews, that he was writing, he said this, that by two mutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into that within the veil. So we have this strong expectation, this hope that God has given us of a new body. And of course, God has promised this to us in his word. Uh, He he promised in Philippians chapter uh, uh, 3, in Philippians chapter 3, in verses 20 and 21, he says, For our conversation is in heaven, Whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, 
and it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So we have this promise that God has given us, this expectation that one day he's going to deliver us from this body of sin that we dwell in, of decay that we dwell in, and even the presence of sin, this world in which we dwell in. And one day he's going to deliver us from that and give us a new body. Uh, It's a new house, you might say. Uh, One that does not corrupt. One that does not decay. One that does not know sorrow. Uh, One that is immortal. It's not subject to death. Uh, Even Job said in Job 19.26, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. For I know that my Redeemer liveth. And so we have this hope of a new body, a new, a new house. We also have the hope of a new home. In, in John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus made a promise to his disciples before he left them, and then after that he sent the comforter to them. But he, but he said uh, uh, in John chapter 14, uh, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So we have this, not only this hope of a new body, but we do have this hope or this expectation of a new home. A new home. The, mo- the word mansion means it's an, it's an abode or it's a dwelling. It's, you know, of course, the word mansion is used to describe uh, splendid uh, uh, structures uh, of, of magnificent architecture. Uh, I don't think there's going to be, uh, uh, I don't think this mansion is going to be made of drywall. I think the, the world is cursed with drywall, I think, you know. It makes a nice wall, but putting it on is another story. And, uh, but anyway, it, it, you know, uh, you know, it, it, and, you know, drywall and OSB board and all that stuff that decays and asphalt shingles and we have to continually paint it. No, this is a mansion that God has repaired. You know, when God makes something, it's eternal. It's eternal. Of course, this is described for in Revelations chapters 20, 21 and 22. Uh, and, of course, we have streets of uh, pure gold like under clear glass and walls and, and foundation stones of, of uh, pearls and gates of pearls and all things like that. You know, and there will be no night there and, 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 and no corruption, no sin there. And all those things, these, this, is, this is our, will be our new home. This is in our Father's house. And this is something that God is preparing for those that love him. This is our new home. And so we have this motivation of hope. This motivation of hope. We're expecting. In John, in 1 John, in 1 John chapter 3, and, <coughs> excuse me, in verses 1 through 3, John said this, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. 
See, he says, we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. We're going to get a body like unto his glorious body. We're going to dwell on a home, the home that he has prepared for us. And if we have that hope, we're purifying ourselves, even as he is pure. That's a motivation of hope. We're expecting it. Like a bride expecting her wedding day. It's planned. There's a time. Now, brides know the day of their wedding. We don't know when our wedding, quote unquote, is going to take place. No man knoweth the day of the hour but the Father. But we know it's coming because that's a promise that God has given to us. So we have this motivation hope. Secondly, there's a motivation of fear. If you notice in verses 9 through 11 of our text, it says, Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, in other words, whether we're with the Lord, and he's talking about being with the Lord bodily, or whether we're absent, we're living in this world, we're not in his physical presence, we may be accepted of him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every man may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. So we have this motivation of fear. He says, no, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, the context here is talking about the judgment seat of Christ, which you and I as God's people will one day stand before him when we go to be with him. And I think that's going to happen immediately after the rapture of the saints, that we'll, we'll stand before him and, and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to sit on the judgment seat, what, what called, referred to as the Bema seat, or the judgment seat, and he's going to judge us according to our works. And in this context, you know, a lot of people say, well, we don't have to be afraid of that. But in that context, he said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Now, with that in mind, go to Revelation chapter 1. See, a lot of people have made this judgment seat of Christ out to be something that we're just going to, it's going to be one big happy occasion. Did you ever go before a judge? Now, I realize there are people that I f- do believe are very flippant and arrogant when they go before a judge. Look how they dress. Look like they're going to a party. It's because they, their parents never instilled any fear of God in their lives. But in Revelation chapter 1, in uh, verse 9, it says, I, John, who am also am your brother and companion in tribulation in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isles called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in the book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, and unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of seven golden can- seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, 
clothed with a garment down at the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hair, hairs were like white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire, his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now, I would submit to you, I believe that's the picture we're going to experience when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. John didn't say, oh, hi, Lord. I'm here. Judge me now. And we're talking about the Apostle John who had been boiled in oil. Who was on the Isle of Patmos suffering because of this testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the word of God. We're talking about a man who had been faithful who was one of the the closest disciples of the Lord, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I mean, he had a really close relationship with the Lord. And he didn't just say, oh, hi, Lord, I'm here. Judge me now. He fell at his feet as dead. Remember, that's the same person that he sees in Revelation 1 that he walked with and talked with and fellowshiped with when the Lord was on earth. You see, we need to fear the Lord. You know, Psalm, 90, Psalm 89, verse 6 says, Who in the heaven can compare it unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. You know, to fear or to reverence means we will defer to his will in each situation and in each circumstance. That's what it means to fear the Lord. We will endeavor to, 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 to defer or give place or give in or follow his will. You know, we fear. We fear a lot of things. As human beings, we fear ourselves. We worry about what we, whether we will measure up or whether we can carry it through. Well, it's not about us. We fear other people. Oh, what am I? You know, we talk about how teenagers are always, you know, in the peer pressure, and we're always worried about what people think. Hello, we adults do that too. We fear people. And we often fear the what-ifs. Just as the children of Israel did, they were, well, what if this happens? And what if that happens? And what if... You know, we can go through life, miserable as all, all get out, if we continually fear what the what-ifs that many times never come to, us, come to pass. You know, really what, the, what our fear of all these things is, it's a denial of the omnipotence and the omniscience and the omnipresent God. In fact, Psalm 25 
and verse 12 says, What man is he that feareth Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that his, he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease. His seed shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. You know, when God called Moses, Moses was fearful. He was afraid. Just like we are many times. And if you're a human being, there will be times you'll fear. But Moses was afraid. And he said, Moses said, Lord, I can't speak eloquent. And the Lord said, Who made man's mouth? Look, Moses, I'm the omniscient God. I have all wisdom. And I can put the words in your mouth that you need to say. And Moses said, well, well, well who shall I say that sent me? How am I going to prove that, that you sent me? God simply said, I'm the omnipotent God. I have all power. What's in your hand? A rod. Throw it down. It became a snake. Pick it up by the tail. You don't pick up tails by, or snakes by tails. Unless you want bit. Pick it up by the tail. What was God showing you? I'm the God of all power. I can do anything. And then the Lord gave him this promise too. I also will be with thee. See, I'm the omnipresent God. I will be with thee. You see, we do need to fear, but we need to fear God. Fear God. You remember what Solomon said at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes? This is the whole duty of man. What's the whole duty of man? Fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole sum. See, you and I ought to be motivated by our fear for God. Our fear for God. Now when he speaks about the judgment here, of course we're talking about the judgment seat of Christ or the judgment of the saints. You know, there's, there's several different judgments in the Bible. You know, really, as we think about this, our sin was judged at Calvary. Christ paid for our sin when he died on the cross. And so our sin is judged at Calvary. And, you know, our sin's been paid for. If you know, and so when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior through repentance that our sins are paid for, we will not be judged again for our sin. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. The only sacrifice is Christ. He hath made him to be sin for us. But we are judged as sons. God judges us as sons. And, and, and he does that daily. You know, if we, if we, if we uh, uh, sin against the Lord, he will chasten us. Even as a father chasteneth a son in whom he delights. Hebrews 12 tells us that. But with this judgment here, it's talking about a future judgment where we're going to be judged as servants at the judgment, what's called the judgment seat of Christ. Again, verse 10 says, For we must all appear, and this is yet future, he's writing yet future, before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Or bad. And the word bad there means worthless. 
Doesn't mean necessarily wicked. Just of no value. Of no value. This judgment is described for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And in verse 11 through 15, where it says, For other foundation could no man lay than that which is, that is laid, which is Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If many man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So, of course, Christ is, you know, he's comparing the work of God, the kingdom of God, to a building. Christ is a foundation. He's the starting point. You can't serve God if you do not have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The sacrifices of the wicked, those that don't have a relationship with God, are an abomination to the Lord. But when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, God wants us to serve Him. We are to be witnesses for Him, and we heard about it this week. And so we can build upon, it's like building upon a foundation. We can build upon a foundation things that will last or things that will be just consumed. And it, you know, you have gold, silver, and precious stones. You have wood, hay, and stubble. There's two different groups here. You know, when wood, hay, and stubble is put to the fire, it just goes up in ashes, and all you have left is a little bit of ashes. Well, what are ashes worth? They have no value. You know, we can, people can serve God in the flesh. I mean, you can, you can teach a Sunday school class. You can sing. You can do a nursing home service. You can witness. You can even preach in the flesh. One preacher say, told me one time he, he thought maybe he preached some of his best messages in the flesh. I'm not sure how you can do that, but oh, that's a little strange. But anyway, you, know, you can do all these things in the flesh. And, and God... God can discern whether it's in the flesh or whether it's done by the Spirit. See, gold, silver, and precious stones are things that are done in the work of the Spirit or in the energy of the Spirit or in the power of the Spirit or the dependence upon the Spirit. And gold, silver, and precious stones, when they're tried with fire, are purified. They are made more precious, of greater value. They abide the fire. And so when he says, every man's work shall be made manifest, verse 13, for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Again, what sort it is, not what size it is. You know, Brother Hammett, I appreciate you bringing it out. You know, just because a ministry's large does not mean, does not mean that it's, better, that it's more spiritual, that's more pleasing to the Lord. I mean, Catholic churches are large, Jehovah's Witnesses are large, Mormons are large, 
Islam was the fastest growing religion in the world. And they're not of God. And many ministries that say they are of God in our world today are nothing more than motivational entertainment centers. They're, I wouldn't even call them wood, hay, and stubble. Because they haven't built upon the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even in, in, in a true church, you know, even in, you know, think about the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation. There were things going on in those churches that were of no value. And yet there were other people in some of those churches, like Thyra Tyra. There was, there was, there was some that were holding fast, but there were others who were teaching the doctrines of Jezebel. So we'd have to ask the question, what is the motive or the purpose of our work? Go to, go to Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus questioned this. <laughs> Excuse me. And that's what the Lord will discern in judgment day. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. When thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and the Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. You see, we're not to, be, we're not to do our works to be seen of men, but for the glory of God. You know what that tells me? It won't matter then whether I'm applauded or not, or whether I'm complimented or not by people. That's not to be our motivation. It's our fear of God. It's our reverence for Him. That He might be glorified. And so, you know, and, and there is a reward. And you know, some people like to talk about the crowns, you know, and to make a lot of big, but, the, but you know what we're going to do with those crowns? We're going to cast them at his feet. See, it's all about him. It's not about us. Oh, what a wonderful crown. Paul said, I'm going to receive a crown. Of, you know, I'm looking forward to a crown of righteousness. The Lord, the righteous judge, will give me in that day. And unto all them love his appearing. But Revelation 5 tells us we're going to all cast those crowns at his feet. For he is worthy. It's he that is worthy. And so there is going to be this judgment. This judgment seat of Christ. Of course, in Revelation 20, there's the great white throne judgment. And, of course, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ will be seated on that as well. And that will be the judgment of the wicked dead who die without Christ and they will be cast into the lake of fire 
forever and ever. And so we see the motivation of hope. We have this also the motivation of fear. But we also have a third thing, the motivation of love. And in verses 13 and 14 of our text, he says, For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. He says here that in verse 14, The love of Christ constraineth us. The word constrain means, the definition is, is to force into or hold in close bounds, to confine, to exert force. And so Paul says the love of Christ is exerting force in my life. It's holding me in close bounds to him. You know, another word that would, would, would fit here would be compels. The love of Christ compels us. Uh, somebody said love is the greatest motivator. Somebody said this, quote, Service can be, never become slavery to one who loves. Of all human passions, love is the strongest, for it attacks simultaneously the head, the heart, and the senses. Unquote. It is the greatest motivator. You know, Jacob loved Rachel. And he served seven years. Can you imagine seven years? Serving seven years for a wife? Not that a wife isn't worth something. Not that a wife isn't of value. But can you imagine seven years? I have a hard time thinking seven years. But you know what? It says, the Bible says it seemed as a few days to him for the love that he had for her. See, it wasn't drudgery because of love. It wasn't slavery because he loved her. And Paul said, the love of Christ constraineth me. It compels me on, willingly. You think about Paul's life in the face of opposition wherever he went. Persecution, you know, ridicule. You know, notice he says here in verse 13, whether we be beside ourselves as God or whether we be sober as for your cause. You know, a lot of people said, Paul, you're mad. Was it Festus, or, or, or Festus, I think it was, said, Paul, you're beside yourself. You are mad. He said, no, I'm not most noble Festus. In fact, he said in Galatians chapter 2, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me. He gave himself for me. See, Paul said, I was the blasphemer and the persecutor of God's people. And yet God so loved me. 
that he died for me, how can I not love him? How can I not love him? And Paul's goal was, you know, Ephesians 3.9, he says, to, I would like to make all men see the mystery of God which is hidden in Christ Jesus. I would like make, to make all men see this salvation that God has, has shown to me and given to me. Because I love him. Because I love him. Not because I have to do this. Or because there's some great reward at the end. It's because I love him. Sometimes people think you're a little crazy. You know, of course, the world's view of love is perverted. They think of, when they think of love, they think of getting, of receiving. But the Bible love is giving. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And, of course, the test of our love is spelled out for us in John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verses 21 and 20 through 24, where, where Jesus, speaking to his disciples, while he was still on earth here before he uh, was crucified and ascended back to the Father, he said this, He that hath my commandments, John 14, 21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself unto him. Judas saith unto him, not a spirit, Lord, how is it thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings, and the word which he hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. You know, when we love somebody, when we love somebody, we desire to please them. You know, children, children have a desire to please their parents. Now, they don't always do that, but they have that desire to please their parents. And and, and if, we, if we have received the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, there ought to be an innate desire. You know, Paul refers to it in Romans 5.8 like a, the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts. And that word shed abroad means to pour out or spill over. It just pours out. It's like you can't help yourself. Jeremiah, Jeremiah was being persecuted even by his family, and he, and he said uh, he, he, he was, you know, you know, he talked about all those who persecuted him, and he was weary of it, and, and he, he said, I'm just not going to speak anymore in his name, but he said, his word was in my heart as a burning fire, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. In other words, he was weary with holding it in. He needed to tell somebody because it was spilling out.
You know, and he prophesied of judgment. But that judgment was the love of God trying to turn his people back to himself. Just like a parent, when a child is rebelling against their authority, if that parent loves them, those children, they will discipline them to turn their hearts back to them. Back to the way of righteousness. See, love is the greatest motivator. Yeah, there, are, there are lots of reasons people are motivated to do things. But like was brought out this week, if you're motivated to reach the lost because there's so many around us, or you feel bad for people, that will fade. When you get out there and there's so many of them that aren't interested. You know, if Paul would have been only concerned, his only concern was a reward and getting the gospel so he could be rewarded, getting you know, and, and making a name for himself and, and, getting, and, and going on these missionary journeys, he'd quit. I mean, when you're getting stoned and beaten and thrown in prison, is that worth it? No, he said the love of Christ constrains me. The love of Christ. It isn't them. It's him. It's obedience to him. So, as we think, consider this this morning. What motivates you? Do you have a confident expectation based on the promise of God? Do you fear or reverence God? Do you defer to him, submit to his will in situations and circumstances of life? Do you love God? Does the love of God constrain you? Is that what compels you? Are you motivated by his love? In Hosea chapter 11 verse 4, the Bible says this, I drew them with the cords of a man and with the bands of love. Your love draws one out. When we receive of the love of God, it draws something out of us. Love draws a response and action. And when Paul said, the love of Christ constrained me, it compelled me, it drew out this witness. That he gave. To the glory of God. It's built upon a relationship with God. You know, do you have that love of God drawing you out, compelling you? Is that what motivates you? You know, do you have that relationship with Him this morning? If not, you know, God loves you. And He demonstrated that by sending his son to die in your place. 
and you can have that relationship. If you repent, put your faith and trust in him. But if you know the Lord is your Savior, remember one day we're going to, we are have this expectation of a new body, a new home. We are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the love of God should compel us to share it. You know, wouldn't you like everybody else to have what you have? We ought to share it with those who don't have this hope. Motivation of service. What motivates you this morning?